The Manchurian Candidate is adopted from an incredibly popular book written by Richard Condon. So popular was the novel that it was one of the top 50 selling books of the 1950s. This despite the fact that it was published in 1959. There are two film versions and the one we're looking at tonight is from 1962. Directed by John Frankenheimer and starring Frank Sinatra, Janet Leigh, Lawrence Harvey and Angela Lansbury, the story is about the plot to shoot a US presidential candidate and as such can be put squarely into the very unique but potent literary genre, <laughs> The Assassin. Assassins are a cold-hearted lot and having a cold-hearted character serving as the engine for your story is a particularly tricky thing. Audiences need someone to root for and it is easier to root for someone who is likeable, warm and, well, not a sociopath. Sociopaths don't have feelings, they imitate the feelings of others and that lack of true empathy can be found in the origin of the word assassin. Some people say it stems from an old Persian word hashish, which I will come back to in a minute. But really it derives from the term assassin, which refers to the followers of assas, believers in the foundation of faith. These believers were killers, so assassins killed for reasons of ideology, i.e. faith and religion. Now, back to assassin allegedly stemming from the word hashish. It is often claimed that these killers would take hashish before they went off on their missions. Why? Because it numbed them from their action, which is untrue. But it does have an interesting frisson about it. An assassin, as I said, is someone devoid of feelings, a sociopath. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? So, back to literature. You can find assassins in the Bible. The book of Samuel has the death of Abner, assassinated by Joab. And later, the book of Chronicles, King Sennacherib of Assyria is assassinated by his own sons because he fails to conquer Jerusalem. Moving forward 2,000 years, you have Shakespeare's Macbeth, Hamlet and Julius Caesar. In cinema, you have Hitchcock, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The 39 Steps and Foreign Correspondent. And most recently of all, we've had the Bourne series, which turned the genre completely on its head. I told you people to leave us alone. I fell off the grid. I was halfway around the world. There's no place that won't catch up to you. It's how every story ends. It's what you are, Jason. A killer. You always will be. What makes the Manchurian candidate different is the assassins are American soldiers, veterans of the Korean War, who conspire against their own political leaders. The movie came out in September 1962 and life imitated art the very next year with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. In this respect, The Manchurian Candidate is a fusion of many genres. You have the war film, the conspiracy thriller and the political angle. This final one is very pertinent because the story explicitly references the paranoia that gripped America in the 1950s. There was the very palpable fear that communists were scheming to take over the United States by advanced brainwashing techniques. Raymond? Yes, sir. Can you see the Red Queen? Yes, sir. 
one week from next Saturday, you will be called for at 11.10 a.m. and taken to the Timothy Swarton Sanitarium, 84 East 61st Street. We want you there for a checkup. Is that clear? Yes, sir. You may put the cards away now. You also have the spy story, and spies, as we know, are employed by the government. In other words, assassins are employed by governments against their own people. That may be nothing new to us now, but back in the late 1950s, the idea that the government could be an enemy of democracy, well, that's the stuff of nightmares. My father's no different than any other powerful man. Any man who's responsible for other people, like a senator or a president. Do you know how naive you sound? Why? Senators and presidents don't have men killed. Oh. Who's being naive, Kay? The American soldiers in the Manchurian Candidate suffer from terrible nightmares, which are in fact suppressed memories of their brainwashing sessions back in Korea, where the communists hypnotized them and, to test the strength of their hypnosis, order them to kill some members of their own unit. Nightmares are tricky things to pull off in movies. Once the audience twigs that they are watching a nightmare, the effect is lost. It is one thing for the characters to believe what is happening, but it is quite another for the audience to believe it as well. They either have to know it's a dream, or they have to believe what they are watching is actually happening. Otherwise, they step back from the story, and let me put it this way, the director is better off brainwashing the audience. For the nightmares in The Manchurian Candidate, director John Frankenheimer sat down with the screenwriter George Axelrod. Upon Frankenheimer's request, Axelrod fashioned a very ambitious nightmare, and for it to be executed properly, Frankenheimer carefully consulted with the cinematographer Lionel Linden and his production designer Richard Silbert. Another modern discovery, which we owe to the hydrangea, concerns the influence of air drainage upon plant climate. Many years ago, when I was traveling about the country, I noticed magnificent hydrangeas on the hills, where the air drainage was uh, perfect. Together, they came up with an ingenious way of completely confusing the audience. The scene is of a woman's group discussing hydrangeas. The camera pans around the stage, where the hostess is talking, and oddly, we see the US soldiers sitting on the same stage. The camera then continues to pan around to the women sitting in the auditorium, listening to the woman giving the address. And then the camera continues panning around until it has done a full 360-degree turn. Allow me to introduce our American visitors. I must ask you to forgive their somewhat lackadaisical manners, but I have conditioned them or brainwashed them, which I understand is the new American word. To believe that they are waiting out a storm in the lobby of a small hotel in New Jersey, where a meeting of the Ladies' Garden Club is in progress. You will notice that I have told them they may smoke. Instead, there are posters of Chairman Mao and Joseph Stalin and several Communist Party officials. It works because, while the camera was turning and had its back to the stage, Production designer Richard Silbert had arranged a swing set that literally flew away and was replaced by a new set while our backs were turned. For me, it is one of the most stunningly executed visual conceits in all of American cinema. The whole thing is momentarily disorientating, but from then on, you as a viewer are in a privileged position because you know that you know more than the characters, except you don't. It's been decided that you will be dressed as a priest help you get away in the pandemonium afterwards. 
Chun Jin will give you a two-piece Soviet Army sniper's rifle that fits nicely into a special bag. There's a spotlight booth that won't be in use. It's up under the roof on the 8th Avenue side of the garden. You will have absolutely clear, protected shooting. You are to shoot the presidential nominee through the head. There was a second adaptation of the book made eight years ago. Directed by Jonathan Demme and starring Denzel Washington with Meryl Streep and Liev Schreiber, it is an interesting version as it brought in the Gulf War, a lot of science fiction, and further to that, the villains were not communists, but hyper-capitalists who resembled such real-life companies as Halliburton and the Carlyle Group. It had a fantastic tagline, everything is under control. But the 1962 version is the one I prefer to watch. Thank you.